This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, he has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history. Drivers, start your engines! This is Tim Coffeen. I'm going to talk about racing history tonight with my my good friend Bones Borsier is with me tonight. And we're going to talk about a, an American racing legend named Bubby Jones. My friend Bones here, he's uh, he's written a lot. He's, what, 18 books? I think we're about 18, yeah. 18 or 19. I can't remember. Well, I know you've written for the Speed Sport News and a lot of other publications, too. And you're a friend of Bubby's, and I knew him. And uh, we're talking about an American racing legend. Boy, he was a hero. You know, I came along. Uh, I didn't move out here until 97. Uh, that was too late to, to Indianapolis until 1997. That was too late to see him race. Uh, but in a way, I feel blessed because I, I caught him in the storytelling phase of his life, you know, as opposed to just the nervous working at the racetrack, very intense phase of his life. Uh, I, I valued his friendship and I I love nothing better than listening to a, a good Bubby Jones story from Bubby Jones. Well, he told definitely told it like it was. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't man. sugarcoat anything. No, and it's interesting because when I was growing up, you know, there's always uh, heroes in different parts of the country, you know, in different forms of motorsports that you hear about, and I've heard that name my whole life, Bubby Jones. You know, and then to to come out here and be lucky enough to. Uh, you know, hang around with him a little bit and, and uh, be at racetracks with him and in race shops with him. And we've had lunches with him. He, he was just uh, an amazing, an amazing American racing character. He sure was. I mean, and he started from the ground up. I mean, being from Danville, Illinois, uh, started out racing motorcycles in high school. And uh, he caught the eye of a local d- motorcycle dealer there pretty early. And uh, they were going to back him. And, uh, he was, he just, when he was going to turn professional, uh, his brother-in-law, Keith Turner owned a super modified and his driver got hurt. So Bub, uh, Bub got a ride in a race car right when he was going to turn pro on a motorcycle. So he said his family was tickled that he got off a motorcycle and started racing a super modified. And he said, like, that was the safest deal. But, was it, was it that quick, um, I mean, was it that narrow a transition where he could have gone one way or the other? Oh, absolutely. He was going to go pro on a motorcycle. I mean, wow. he he was he was really good motorcycle racer, and uh, he was gonna he was just getting ready to go pro. Uh, remember, at lunch one day, he was talking about racing bikes, and somebody there at the table said, "What was the what was the biggest thing you learned racing motorcycles, Bub?" And he just looked at the guy and said, "Not to crash." Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, he started racing modifieds in for his brother-in-law all over Illinois. And it wasn't high money. Uh, didn't pay a lot of money to race back then. And, you know, he was a barber on the side. Right. And, uh, you know, he 
He raced a lot in central Illinois uh, for his brother-in-law, Keith Turner, and then he started, uh, him and his buddy Larry Henry started racing together, his lifelong friend that he grew up with in Danville. And they raced all over, and they raced against some really tough competition, you know, Dick Gaines, uh, a lot of those guys in the Midwest. Um, big hero of Bubs when he was growing up, he used to talk about Webb Spaulding, who was a right. uh, St. Louis racer. Yep. And Bub had a lot of admiration for him. Yeah. Uh, and he drove uh, for Larry Henry uh, until he got hired by Wink Bridges, who had the Tri-R construction car, which is a legendary car. Larry Cannon got out of that car and went to USAC, and Bub got the ride. Was it was it Larry Cannon who Bub worked for at the barbershop? Certainly was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's going to be one of the strangest – we know a lot of racers with part-time professions, you know, trying to make money in the off season and trying to make a go of things. if you have a, a little bit of a week month or two, but I mean, to work as a barber is just straight out of left field to me. Well, that was a unique situation also because Larry Cannon owned the barber shop and Steve Cannon, his younger brother was also a barber and Bub Bubby worked there too. Uh, Larry Cannon told me years later, he told me, he said, you could always tell when Bub had a good weekend racing. I said, how's that, Larry? And he said, well, he says if he had made a little money on the weekend, he didn't show up to work till noon on Monday. And you could always tell when he won because he never showed up till Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but he drove, um, he drove for Wink Bridges, um, up until like nine, he really started. He got out a little bit driving for Wink, and he went over to Eldora and raced some. And he raced the Knoxville Nationals and qualified for the A Main over there, which is quite an accomplishment with the amount of competition there is there. Yep. And he started traveling a little bit and getting a taste of that. And then M. A. Brown hired him, uh, I believe, in 1973. And uh, him and Billy Anderson, the mechanic, Bub's mechanic, and M. A. They are obviously quite a team. Yeah, it seemed like that was the, maybe the rocket ride started right there. You well, know. They, he really started traveling when that happened. I mean, they went everywhere. And, you know, Bub had won three straight championships at Little Springfield, I think, in 69, 70, and 71. He'd won the tra uh, track championship at Granite City. Uh, he won the track championship at Danville. So he was well accomplished in his uh, his regional area. But when he got with M.A., he really he went out and – We've used the word before. He had wanderlust. He wanted to travel, and he mm -hmm. went all over the. He started traveling everywhere, and he didn't really hang around and run any particular place all the time. You mentioned Little Springfield. You need to tell a story about whenever anybody asked him, "Bub, how many races did you win at Little Springfield?" Well, he Bub would say he would he would give you about three or four seconds, and he'd look at you and you go. I won them all. Yeah. <laughs> and he also, um, racing at Little Springfield was a really small track, a quarter mile, but it had characteristics uh, that were similar to Eldora. And he would say a lot of times that the reason, and it, Jones didn't sugarcoat anything, and he wasn't shy about telling you what he thought. He would talk about Eldora, and he said, the reason I'm so good at Eldora is because I learned to race at Little Springfield. And he said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, um, uh, Joe Shaheen, the promoter at Little Springfield, used to have a road grader and do the track just like Earl Baltus. It's high bank, 
and they put the blade up against the wall. Well, there's always a little bit of dirt that, that you can't push away from the wall. So there was always a little bit of cushion, but it was right against the fence. Yeah. And Eldora was very similar. Bub said he went back there in 1991, I was believed, to run a CRA when they came back to the Midwest to race. And Bub thought he was hooking it around there. He hadn't been there since 1979 when he left USAC, but uh, he thought he was going pretty good. And he said Earl Baltus came up to him, the old Earl that owned and and uh, Earl, yeah. Earl did the track. I mean, he yeah. was famous for uh, grading the racetrack. He knew he he really knew how to um, do a good dirt surface to put on a show. Mm-hmm. And he told Bub, he said he looked at Jones and he said. It's still up there, Bub. You just got to go find it. Bub says, I guess I'm not running close enough to the fence. Uh, You talked about him traveling with Billy Anderson. How tough a combination was that? And was it a deal where driver and mechanic interacted, or did one have stronger uh, a stronger say in things than the other did? Uh, Well, they traveled quite a bit together. Um, Jones is Jones was definitely. Bubby's one of the smartest guys I ever knew about a race car, and he could get hard-headed about stuff, but he was usually right. Uh, Billy's a good mechanic, and uh, they were together a long time, and you know as well as I do, when you're living with somebody, going up and down the road, sharing motel rooms rooms with them and running 100 races a year, uh, you know, (laughs) times can get, uh, as far as being together all the time, that can get tough. Yeah, well, he did. A little, it, it it did occasionally, but I mean, they won, they were winning 35, 40 races a year and they were racing, they were going from, they raced from the East coast to Ascot. I mean, they raced all over the country and, uh, yeah, that, that was when Bub really came to the, when he came really start, I mean, he was a great local racer around the Midwest, but when he, when he got with M.A. Brown and Bruce, uh, Bruce Kogel, the sponsor from Thomasville, Alabama, he really came into his own. Yeah, I think that's the car that if, if, you, if you ask people from around the country you know, who didn't have any exposure to Bub in his, in his regional days, I think that 44 car would be it. You know, that oh, absolutely. And that's the one that they most clearly identify with first seeing him you know, in the magazines or in Speed Sport or wherever. I mean, he was... I know that was my first exposure to him. And then, of course, Sammy Swindell took over that ride later on. And, you know, it was a famous car, but I think Bub put it on the map as much as it put Bub on the map. Well, yeah. I mean, Bub, when he went to drive for MA, uh, Chuck Amati was there for a while and he'd been driving for, for MA for a while, but he left and Bub and Billy took over and they, they hit the road. And I mean, they, they went, they didn't race locally a lot. They, they traveled. And uh, in those days, and Bones, you and I have discussed this before, uh, uh, that era of driver, you know, when Bub was traveling and Rick Ferkel was the Ohio traveler and, and Jan Opperman and Bobby Allen. And uh, you had all those guys that were showing up. You never knew where they were going to show up. Kenny Weld, um, that came before the right before the Outlaws started. I mean, that that was a group of guys that really – um, the outlaw racing, you know, Knoxville got huge during that era. Jan and Bub and Ferkel and Bobby Allen and all them. It was uh, it was quite a it's quite an era of racers, uh, and you never knew where those guys were going to show up. Wherever they paid the most money, and a lot of them, when they got to the pit window, they'd see the promoter and say, "Hey, how about a little in uh, little in yeah. the pocket here, <laughs> little show up money." 
I think it would amaze pe- amaze people to learn how those guys created the, their schedules. I mean, there was no, nothing to follow, no certain sport news. Yeah, <laughs> they looked through the trade papers, and there and, you go. And you know, if a track was paying fifteen hundred, and there was might be an ad on the next page where another track was paying twenty five hundred, well, that was simple math. You know, if if you could get to both for the same price, you may as well go. For, you know, for wherever the money was being paid. I remember and, at Sedalia uh, in 1975, they had a, a two-day show. I think in those days, a thousand to win was a big deal, yeah. and uh, they had a Saturday night, Sunday afternoon at the State Fairgrounds, uh, Missouri State Fairgrounds, and uh, so anyway, there was a Friday night race, and I was helping Steve Schultz, a guy that was living in Indianapolis. He was from originally from Chillicothe, so he wanted to go home and run these races over there. I went with him, and there was a race Friday night at Jeff City, Missouri, at Capitals Capital Speedway. And this race pays like 600 to win. And we pull into the pit gate there to get into the track, and the rigs were lined out to the highway. There was like 60 cars there because a lot of guys had come from Illinois and Indiana, yeah. uh, Nebraska, and wherever to run these two races at Sedalia. And they naturally got the speed sport news out and said, where are they racing on Friday night? We can make a little money there on the way. That's how racing was. And that had to be the luckiest promoter in the world that week. You know, I got to be an eyewitness for that. I saw Jones pull up, Bubby pulled up in his Dodge charger. He had a 70, I don't know. He had a early seventies charger pulls up to the pit window and the promoter came out, and he was tickled pink. He goes, I got me Bubby Jones racing here tonight. You know, and yeah. Jones looked at the guy and says, hang on, hang on. He goes, what are you paying to win? The guy says, 500 Jones turned to Billy Anderson. He says, take the rig to the motel. We'll run tomorrow. And the guy says, hang on a minute. And he, he gave, <laughs> slipped him a few hun just to run. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing the deals that went on behind the scenes. It's, it's really something to think about that they would all show up at the same place, you know, having not communicated everything or anything, uh, having not talked about it, uh, just, you know, by all, by following all those trade paper ads, they would all just almost magically appear at these different places. I mean, it had to be an amazing, an amazing time. It was. I mean, there was a lot of freedom too. I mean, just where, I mean, like when you're on the way to the West Coast, uh, say you're going to run the Western states at Phoenix in October. Uh, one year there was a big paying race at Albuquerque, New Mexico. I paid quite a bit of money. And I'll never forget, Jones is racing Rick Ferkel for the lead, and he got into Ferkel and knocked him off the end of the track. And Jones pulled, he slowed down and waited for him to come back, and he let him go back by him. Really? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that's how those guys carried on back then. And, uh, well, a code of fairness, I think, you know, more than you see today. Absolutely. It was easier I mean, to get hurt. You had to take care of each other a little bit. I mean, Bub was – he always talked about how much he loved racing at Eldora. And Eldora is uh, – uh, Bub would uh, – he'd let you know. I mean, he'd slide up the bank into a guy, and he'd do it a couple of times and let him know, I'm coming, I'm faster than you, and he'd let him know. And before he before he went down hard into the bottom and slid up in front of the guy. Well, nowadays, as you just stated, I mean that the, the slide jobs—they swap ends of the track every every lap. There's two slide jobs. It's yeah. it's quite a bit of different. It's a different approach. Yeah, uh, I was Bubby a, a typically what ninety or hundred races a year for you know three or four years or absolutely yeah yeah they he would run 
he would run during the middle of the week. He would run three nights a week. Uh, and he toured, you know, when he got with MA, they, they did want to race like it was winter time and there's not a r- lot of racing going on. Uh, they would go to why not Mississippi because there was a race there, yeah. but they liked to race for the money. Bub was a money racer. Uh, I remember one night at Eldora, he was running for MA and Billy Anderson and the, uh, he was running second on the white flag lap, and he spun out Mike Johnson. He was a local Indiana guy. At El- he spun him out at Eldora on the last lap. And, I mean, even his own mechanic, Billy Anderson, was mad at Bub, and Mike Johnson came down and yelled at him. And Jones said, says, he's got a job. He says, all I do is race, and my kid's got to eat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no fooling around. <laughs> no fooling around. Uh, what was the big, the first big show every year? Would it have been the Tampa Fairgrounds? Yeah, that was Tampa. I think Bub only did that one year. I don't know why. I mean, he he started going to California and working for his friend Larry Henry in the winter time, but uh, in in L.A. But he only ran. I think he only run the Tampa Winter, the IMCA Winter Nationals down there one time. Uh, but that was always the one that kicked off. And that was in February, early February. And that thing seemed to draw – it was one of the few events other than maybe Knoxville that would draw not just the so-called outlaw guys, but, you know, the the top USAC guys as well. Oh, everybody – Steve Stapp used to go down there. I mean, from he was, you know, USAC car owner. Kenny Weld would come from Pennsylvania. I mean, they there's a lot of IMCA guys from the Midwest, but you're exactly right. That was a big – that was – that brought them in from all over. You think beating those guys at places like that or – you know, any of the big shows he ran on the road, is that what kind of swung Bubby toward maybe one day running USAC, or was it more his idea that I can get to Indianapolis? You said it, the last one. He always wanted to run the Speedway. I don't care. He he wanted to go to Indianapolis. I mean, that's – I mean, he, he, he loved racing, and he wasn't young. I mean, he – he raced on the road and I mean, he, like I said, he was a barber when he was younger and he raced and had a job. And, and then when he started racing for MA, I mean, he was, he was over, well, he was in his early thirties Yeah, and, uh, he wanted to run the speedway. That's, you know, I remember him and Opperman talking about the speedway. They both wanted to get to Indy, you know, cause they, I mean, you can, you can make some money there. You don't have to run, you know, Parnelli Jones said he used to put his head on the chopping block 60 times a year, and he thought that was way too much in his day. Yeah. And uh, that those, I'm sure those guys felt the same way. I mean, they wanted to get to the – they wanted to run Indianapolis. Yeah, and I would guess it wasn't just for the money. It was the fact that that was the big daddy race. I mean, that if you, ha- if you had to win a race and you were going to be known all over the world, uh, that was going to be the one that did it. That's exactly right. There was only one Indy. Yeah. What was it that uh, – what was his first step toward toward the USAC stuff? Well, he actually – before he drove for M.A. Brown, uh, Wink Bridges at B4 car we were talking about, they were on a half a dozen races uh, in USAC. Bubby did with them in 72. And uh, he ran really good. I remember at Eldora, him and Gary Bettenhausen – Gary Bettenhausen had a heck of a – uh, race there and Gary had that four cam Ford that he, he was driving for Penske and making good money. So he bought a, he bought a four cam Ford, which is a pretty expensive engine. Gary liked it cause it was so loud. He liked to give people earaches. <laughs> but bad. anyway, uh, him and Bub had a heck of a race that day. 
And I remember uh, Terre Haute in 1972. Uh, he was driving that B4 car. And Bobby Grimm and I were standing down in the corner. Bobby Grimm Jr. were standing down in the corner watching the race. And uh, Bub was the only guy that ran against the fence all day. It was the last time an off he won a sprint car race, a USAC sprint car race. Mel Cornette won the feature. Yeah. And uh, Bub ran against the wall all day. I mean, he was – there was something about him and the cushion. I remember Billy Engelhart told me once that Jones uh, Jones was just so smooth on the top. And, you know, people were taking notice of him and everything. And then he got the deal we just talked about with M.A. and he traveled for years. And uh, But he didn't race – he didn't have much pavement experience at all. And, right. uh, you know, you want to run Indy – you got to run pavement, and that's I think that's why he went to USAC. Out of those USAC guys, you know, I'm trying to think in that era, you know, Gary B and, and Poncho and Angle Hart was a USAC guy by then. How, how did those guys uh, see a guy like Bub coming in? I mean, they had to know what he had done on the road, but he was an outlaw before the outlaws, so to speak. I mean, did they instantly respect him? I think so. I mean, Bub was – Bub was a – he was hard to – it's hard to put a, your thumb on what, what he personally, how he was. But he was a clean racer. That guy, you could run wheel-to-wheel with him all day. Uh, and, I mean, he – if you messed with him, that was the wrong thing to do. But he was way – Billy Hingleart told me that Bubby Jones is as good a cushion rider against the wall as anybody he ever saw. And uh, Bub's reputation, he was a gentleman – uh, didn't want to piss him off, but uh, he he fit in with those guys right away. I mean, he and he, I mean, when he came to USAC, him and Billy had split up. Anderson and Bub didn't have a mechanic. He was the mechanic on the car, and that's when I started helping him because he didn't have any help. Yeah. But uh, you know, no, those guys. I think he got along pretty good with everybody there. What was the introduction that uh, your your first race with him? I know there was a story behind that uh, going over racetrack in Ohio. Oh, that was at the mile at, uh, uh, it was Indy Mile in 76, I think. And, uh, Merle, I was working at Bettenhausen's and we sold fuel and Goodyear tires at the races. And I was the tire buster and the fuel pumper and whatever I had to do back at the race shop. So I brackets on, run the lays and stuff. But anyway, uh, Merle told Bubby when he came in to pay us because Bubby bought a couple tires and some fuel that night. Merle told him, Bub came to pay his bill. Merle told him, if you want uh, any fuel or any tires for tomorrow night, because there was a race at Finley, Ohio, he said, uh, get it now because I'm not going. I've decided to stay home. And uh, Bub looked at me and he goes, what are you doing tomorrow night? (laughs) You want to go to Ohio with me? And I said, didn't have to think twice. (laughs) I went with him and, and that's when I started helping him. And that was kind of cool for me because I'd been helping Jan and, uh, and Jan got to ride with Longhorn and, uh, you know, he had all the help he needed then. He didn't need a spare guy hanging around helping. So anyway, uh, we get over to Finley and it's just me and Bub because Billy, like I just said, Billy wasn't there then they'd split up. And, uh, Jan came down before the, they were both in the, in the concy that night in the, they didn't make it through their heat race, so they had to run the last chance race to get in the feature. And Jan came down, and he goes, would you come down and sipe that tire like you, Don Singer showed you how to do it for my 
for the B main for me. And Bub says, now hold on a minute, Opperman. I bought his pit pass and brought him over here tonight. And I'll never forget, Jan had me by one arm and Bub had me by the other. And I felt like a wishbone. And I said, a year ago, I was sleeping in my station wagon, didn't have a job. Now I got the two best sprint car drivers in the country <laughs> fighting over me. I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> fighting over your services. <laughs> yes, sir. That's a good deal. How about the traveling with Bub? What was he like on the road? Uh, a lot of those guys, you know, traveled kind of close to the bone. It wasn't a fancy deal. I mean, you ate where you ate and slept where you slept. And, well, um, he was a he was a master of the coffee shops. He loved coffee shops and uh, you know being with other racers. And that that's when you get into the technical aspect of designing things. I mean, Bub would he'd get the napkins out on the coffee, on the table there in the booth and start drawing bird cages and Jacob's ladders. And, uh, no, we had an awful lot of fun going up and down the road listening to Waylon Jennings, you know, again, listen to the glass packs on the truck roaring <laughs> and the, and the music going. And I mean, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a, one of the greatest parts of my life. Yeah. He was, he was a lot of fun to travel with. Did he see himself? You think in that period, uh, advancing toward Indy? Absolutely. He, I mean, he always said he always wanted to go to the Speedway, and that's the reason he went to USAC. I mean, he ran outlaw racing because he had a, he did what he had to do to make money and race, but when he, he talked M.A. Brown and Bruce Kogel, he wanted to go to USAC, and they didn't have a pavement car. I mean, those cars, as you know, Bones back then, uh, the dirt chassis that evolved out of Pennsylvania, you know, with the longer arms, the torsion arms and the motor up higher in the, you know, it's all in farther back to the, everything was, was around racing on dirt. So his car, the first year he ran USAC in 1976, he ran a, a J and J. It was a dirt, dirt track sprint car. It was not, it was not suited to run at Winchester and, and uh, some of those places like that. So he was at a disadvantage, but he went there thinking that either he, he, he could make his – someone would – he would get a ride. You know, he really – and that when Jan got hurt, that's when he got the, the Longhorn ride. And they had a good pavement car at the time, and he proved that he could run on pavement, obviously. How about uh, equipment aside, how did he take to those tracks himself? What, pavement? Yeah, I mean, a, you know, Winchester or Salem, those high-banked – you know, scary hill tracks, they call them, you know, the, 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 the real bank places, Dayton, Salem. Right. He, once he got in a decent car, I think he really, I mean, he swept the old timers races in 1977, uh, the 240 lap features in Winchester's as you know, is as daunting a place as you can go. In 1977, when he got that ride after Jan got hurt, he won seven races that year in four different cars. He won a race in that stat four bar, a Longhorn car, and they got rid of that, and they got an Osborne car, uh, dirt car, and he won in that. And he swept the uh, the weekend at Winchester. And a lot of people don't know or remember that uh, Bigelow was driving for Armstrong and Paul Leffler then, and he was running an IndyCar race at Texas, and they put Bub in that car at uh, Raceway Park, and Jones won in that car at Raceway Park. So uh, that's Raceway Park's a tough joint. And uh, it's a big sweeping, you know, five-eighths mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile on the outside fence. It's a big track. And, uh, yeah, he he liked running pavement. Do you think that's the season when he really announced to everybody, you know, made his presence known, I'm here and, and I'm the next guy to, to step up? Well, and, and 
I mean, right away when when Jan got hurt uh, in Helen, and Helen hired Bub to take Jan's place. Uh, you know, Bub Bub struggled a little bit the first couple of pavement races in 1977, and at Raceway Park, uh, pole night sprints was a night he figured out pavement. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he was hooked up that night, and he was in the B main, and him and Billy Casella tangled coming off turn four. <laughs> it was ugly. I thought Bub and uh, Boston Louie were going to get down and roll on the ground, but no anyway, uh, that's the night he told me that him and Donnie Ray Everett, the mechanic, they figured it out. But right then and there, that day, uh, Bobby Hillen told Bub that if uh, George Snyder qualified, they had two. Bobby Hillen had two Indy cars. He had the, he bought that Wildcat from uh, Patrick from Big Naughty, and and George Snyder qualified for the five hundred that day. And Bobby Hillen told Bub, if George gets in the show on the first weekend, we'll put you in the old Eagle and try and get you in next weekend. And Jones came off that performance at Raceway Park. He, you know, he crashed, but I mean, he was going fast. And he said, I figured it out that night, pavement. And uh, he went to the Speedway the next week. And uh, and the, a week from uh, a week later, he qualified for the first Indianapolis 500. And I'll never forget him saying that, you know, Bub wasn't like most guys in those days. Sprint car guys, you know, they all had jobs, uh, truck drivers, machinists, whatever, to to pay the bills. And Bub was a barber when he was younger. Well, Bub said, I was a professional race driver. I run 100 races a year, and that's how I have my family. I didn't – I fed my family. I didn't have a job. But he said, and you go to Indianapolis, and it's the fourth day of qualifying at the Speedway – and there's two str- – back in those days, you got three chances to qualify at uh, Indy, and then the car was disqualified. And you got two strikes on your car, and it's 4.30 in the afternoon on bump day on the fi- final day of qualifying. He says, and there's three guys sitting on your pit wall with their helmet on their knee. He goes, I figured out what pressure was. I thought I knew what pressure was, but that was pressure. Well, he got it up, and he got faster. He only had – he was out on his last chance to qualify – and he got faster every lap, and he drove a great race. I was on his crew that day. Uh, he started thirty uh, third, and uh, in eighty laps, he was in the top ten, and uh, he blew the engine. And I mean, Indy didn't work out for him. He wanted to run there, and that was right when the cart, uh, cart, uh, USAC uh, schism, or however you pronounce that, happened, and. Uh, you know, it didn't work out for him as far as the speedway cars go, but that's what he wanted to do. I remember him talking about uh, having had a, a healthy respect for that place, you know, bordering on fear maybe. You know, he used to say something at lunch about, you know, if you weren't if you weren't a little bit scared being there for the first time, you were crazy. I mean, do you remember him, uh, you know, uh, approaching it that way? Uh, I just remember the respect he had for the place. Um, he did have a ton of respect for that joint. I mean, you know, he was, uh, he didn't sugarcoat stuff and, uh, he was, he was a country guy. He didn't, uh, I remember what he said. He said that place on West 16th street ain't no easy deal. Yeah. And, uh, that, that summed it up. He, he was, uh, he had a great deal of respect for the speedway. Yeah. How about the other, uh, IndyCar tracks? Uh, you know, how close to getting things going at some of those places was he? 
Um, well, he drove that uh, for Art Sugai, had that old pink eagle that Rick Mears had missed a race in that year, his rookie year. And he drove that a couple times that year. I remember he, he spun the thing at Michigan and qualified. That was his first qualifying lap, and he didn't get a you – know, so he just second lap, and you could hear the, the tires flapping all the way around the track because they were flat spotted. But yeah. he never really – I mean, they put him in the – in 78, Bub got in the Wildcat that Snyder had driven in 77 – and uh, the first day out of the box, he was going fast. I mean, he was he was right up there at the top. He was in the right knocking on getting in the top ten speed wise. Then all of a sudden, he 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 was spooked, and he said the thing scared him, uh, and he missed the show. I mean, Vuki got in the thing on the fourth day, and he didn't like it either. Well, they found out later the thing had a fr- uh, broken front bulkhead in it. Yeah, and how and, do you know uh, that if you had never experienced it? You know, how do you exactly? Yeah. Especially a guy like that that was new to those kinds of cars, still relatively new to the racetrack. Exactly. Daunting deal. It is. So, uh, I don't know. When you talk about Jones, just the, everything he did racing bikes and, uh, you know, racing all over the Midwest and then going coast to coast racing, uh, you know, going to USAC and, I think he won 22 USAC sprint car features. But, uh, you know, after he lost that deal with uh, Longhorn, he went to work for Don Siebert and Jim McQueen. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they, they had a quite – Pardon? 79 was that? Yeah, it was in 78. He originally went with them. Okay. And uh, I remember one time you asked me, Bones, about – Jones and mechanics and kind of interacting. And I'll never forget, Jones ran, uh, when he started driving in 78, the first day he drove for McQueen and Siebert, they had a Grant King four bar and he really liked that car. And he broke, uh, he broke the track record at Terre Haute and qualifying won the feature. And he won another feature that year at Eldora in it. And he liked it. And so they went into 1979 running that car. And the first race at Eldora, it was a split. It was a combo midget uh, sprint car race. So there's a lot of cars on the tracks. A Sunday afternoon, it was super dry, slick. He drew a late number to qualify. And uh, I think he, I mean, in those days, you had to be in the top 28 to make the feature. And I think he was like 20th or 21st in qualifying. And uh, he got out of the car and they had the, the they had bought a, a Mitchell car, a, a Mitchell Carl Kinzer chassis. And that was just sitting there. And Bub wanted to drive the King car. He liked that King car. And uh, Jones says, well, McQueen, we're going to have to come from the back. We're going to do any good today. And McQueen says, yeah, that might be so, but you ain't going to do it in this in this King car. And Bub says, what do you mean? He goes, I withdrew the King car. You're going to qualify the Mitchell car. And Jones <laughs> says, what? <laughs> well, Jones went out and qualified the Mitchell car and didn't – he. He qualified better. He got up towards the top 10, but he started coming through the field and he won the feature in that car. And, uh, and that was Jim McQueen. I mean, he just, he didn't even, I mean, he just said, we're, you're not driving that car. You're going to try this one. We can do better with this one. And, That's why uh, I wondered about those two guys, because you know, you always, you always have a little apprehension when a guy, a driver who knows a lot about cars, himself and is used to doing his own thing signs on with a uh you know a very respected mechanic and you almost get two 
type A personalities there. I mean, I don't think either one of them was a typical type A, but when it came to race cars, they knew what they wanted. Uh, they had their own thoughts on things. And I think that's why we discussed it last time. I remember saying, how did these guys, how did they mesh? They meshed very well. They really did. I mean, McQueen really respected Bub and, and Bub respected McQueen. And I mean, there was times they get to the track and they, they struggled. I mean, there was something not right, or they had to figure out how to make the thing for that particular night. I mean, I went to the races with them a lot that year. I remember uh, at Hinsdale at Santa Fe, uh, the motor wasn't running right, and it was getting hot. And Jones barely got in the feature through the B main, and he was going to start 17th. Well, McQueen found the thing had a hole in one of the fuel lines and changed the fuel line, and boy, that thing came to life, and here he comes. He came through the, he came through the field and won the race. But I think – Bub knew that Jim was going to give him everything he had because Jim wanted to both as far as that relationship went, uh, they both wanted to win. That was the whole premise for even showing up at the track. Mm -hmm. And they were very passionate about that, what they did. And this might be getting uh, out on the edge here and getting away from what we're talking about. But I'm going to say right here and now that it's a travesty that Jim McQueen is not in the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame. Yeah, and you're not alone in that. That's a that's a, a commonly held opinion. He's you know, a he was a brilliant. He's outspoken, and he would tell you what was he wouldn't sugarcoat anything. Jim was Jim, yeah. but when it came to and I mean, you look at all the guys that drove for him; they all won races, and he was funny. Yeah. I remember Steve Kinzer drove for him one day at uh, at Eldora, and he started last in Jim's dirt car. I think he was racing in Syracuse or something, and he came back to run the dirt car on Sunday, so they made him start last. Yeah. And he wins the race, and and Jim says, I I, find, I figured out Carl Kinzer's speed secret. And I said, what's that? He goes, Steve Kinzer. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Not bad. Yeah, you're not alone in thinking that about Jim because uh, every year when Hall of Fame time comes around, Everybody brings that up, and, and I don't know how it hasn't happened yet or why it hasn't Well, happened. Bones, you know what? I'll make you a deal right here and now. When we're on the, I'm not going to say we're on the national airwaves, <laughs> but we're on the public airwaves. Yeah. And what it takes to get somebody uh, to try and get them in the Hall of Fame, you have to submit a – so maybe you and I can do something for Jim. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe take care of that or get it pointed in the right direction because he deserves to be honored. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if anything comes out of it, I think that's just what I think. Now, uh, Bubby in 79, he had a run at the USAC title that didn't work out. But can, can you talk us through that? Sure. Um, like like I said, you started out uh, with uh, running the, – they had two sprint cars. for They had the, the King car and the Mitchell Dirt car, and they had a Stapp uh, spring front car. Well, in this era now, in the past just couple of years, roadsters and offset cars had started to come into vogue in USAC. I mean, Paul Leffler built, uh, uh, he had an offset car for Bigelow. It was just designed for pavement with a real low motor in it. Steve Chassis was driving that jet engineering, that titanium roadster. Mm -hmm. um, Marvin Carmen was running a roadster, uh, Jeff Bloom. So you had specialized cars for asphalt and dirt and and also that year, Jim had a lot of engine trouble. 
And uh, I remember at the end, uh, when Bub left the team at the end of 79, uh, Jim got the engines sorted out. But going back to 79, uh, Bub won every race. Well, he won four out of five at Terre Haute. And the only reason he didn't won five in a row was because the the titanium axle uh, snapped with about five laps to go in the uh, Holman Classic, and he flipped over the fence leading the race. But he won 11 races on dirt, but they struggled mightily on pavement. And uh, they had engine trouble, and uh, their engines didn't, you know, Jim wasn't happy with it. And the next year, Bub left, and he was gone. And they, like I said, Jim spent the winter uh, getting ready for 1980 and down there at – Bob Glidden's place, running engines on the dyno, and they offset their spring front car. So Bub struggled on the pavement that year, and uh, that's what cost him the championship because he won 11. He won every race they ran at New Bremen. He won all three of them. Uh, He won at Hinsdale. Uh, He won four at Terre Haute. I think he won 11 races in that Mitchell car. But uh, in the end, he got got nosed out in the last weekend at Winchester, and – uh, that was you and I've discussed this before. It was uh, that that cart USAC thing happened, and Bub wanted to run the speedway. And when Pat Patrick told him that he'd give him a ride at the speedway, and then put Gelhausen in the car, uh, Bub was. And then you know he lost the championship, and uh, he headed for California. He, he just said you know he didn't see it happening in Indy, and he was frustrated. Uh, he was very frustrated, so he ended up going to California. Amazing to think you could have a, a year when you won 11 races uh, and yet be that personally down because your bubble had been burst. You know, the indie thing had fallen apart, or right. he could sense that it was falling apart. And I mean, it's just such a big change in his life at that point. Well, you had to bring money, and he was a money. He wasn't a money. He wasn't going to bring any money because he did it for money. He was a. He drove as a professional, and that's when the ride buying started and all that kind of stuff. So that wasn't, you're right. That, that wasn't him. Yeah. And then he went off to California and sort of reinvented himself, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. To say the very least. I mean, he, as you know, what he won 80 races out there running CRA and he started out racing with the Kazarians and uh, you know, he won two CRA championships in 83 and 84 and cars that he built himself. He always wanted to build his own cars. And he got his own shop. His buddy Larry Henry had a building next door to Larry's business in Anaheim. And he he got a shop, had his kid Davey working for him. And Tony was out there. And he met Patty. Um, Patty and Bub and Patty had three girls. And Bub, I'm just going to say it, I think that was a happy place in Bub's life. He was really happy out there. Um, He had a shop. He was building cars. He enjoyed running Ascot. He liked racing against Dean Thompson. Uh, he had a lot of friends out there. Um, that was a, it was a, you know, when he left, he was very frustrated and, um, I was happy. I didn't get to see him as much anymore cause I was an indie and, uh, and then I moved to Chicago after a couple of years, but, um, yeah, he, that was a big time for him in his life. Um, you know, he won a lot of races out there, but he won a lot of races anywhere he went, but he, he would be the first to tell you. That to go into Ascot and think you're going to go in there and beat Dean Thompson every weekend, you're good luck. <laughs> I think that was the shocker because that was one of those little enclaves of weekly racing that very few guys uh, showed up at uh, and instantly were right at the top level like he was. I mean, guys might go in for the 
the old Pacific Coast Nationals or shows like that. But to run the weekly deal at Ascot and beat a guy like Dean Thompson and the rest of those CRA guys, I mean, I think it kind of took everybody, uh, not by surprise because they knew how good Bubby was, but it, it, I think it opened some eyes. It took a while for him to figure it out, and he admitted it. I remember I went out there with him in uh, M.A., in M.A. Brown's car with Billy Anderson in 76, the week after he'd won Manzanita. And uh, he, you know, he ran it in the top 10, but he didn't like the place. I mean, a lot of Billy said, you know, he was aggravated him and qualifying one night, said he's driving the car too straight and doesn't want to back it in. Well, brother, he learned how to back it in a couple of years later, but it was a tough deal for him out there. He, uh, and he had some crashes. I mean, the first couple of times he went to Manzanita to run with CRE, he had some bad crashes. He didn't get hurt real bad, but destroyed race cars. And uh, yeah, it was a whole new it was a whole new deal for him. Yeah, uh, Manzanita, we kind of glossed over that a little bit, but talk about that joint. Well, you know, that was interesting because a lot of people always. This is just my observation. What Bub used to say about. They, people talk about Knoxville and talk about how dangerous Knoxville, Iowa is. And and I know there's been some guys that have lost their lives there and they've had some bad crashes. But Bub would say, I don't get the big deal about how dangerous Knoxville is. He says it's wide and uh, you, you can see really good around the track. He says, now Manzanita, that's a whole different deal. I mean, you got to run right on the fence at that place. And I mean, Manzanita is a, was a big racetrack. I mean, it it's probably five ace on the fence. It was a huge joint. It was fast and you had to run right on the wall. And if something happened and you, the first time I saw him run CRA, I was out there working for Stanton in 1980 and he went out of the joint and turned oh, three. Wow. Yes, he did. Well, the first two times he went out there, he destroyed cars, got upside down and turned three. Ask him the junkyard. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That end. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when he went out there previous with MA and them, he, he took to the place right away. I mean, he told me one time, he says, Timmy, he says, Manzanita ain't nothing but a big Granite City, Illinois. I mean, and he was really good at Granite City. And that's where him and Opperman met was Granite City. Oh, for uh, the first time, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Jan's Opperman's dad told me a story about that. He said that Jan was driving for John Singer in that Cahill's car in 1971. And they were hopping around trying to get pick races and make money. They were racing a lot. And they decided to go to Granite City, Illinois. And Jan, I traveled with Jan, and, and a lot of drivers, when they get done racing, they just want to go to sleep in the back seat or in the truck or whatever. Well, Jan, sometimes he was so pumped from racing that he would he'd stay up and tell you every lap what happened. Well, his dad told me, and they lived in Beaver Crossing, Nebraska, which is I don't know four hundred miles from Granite City. Um, and so that's a long drive home from Granite City, Illinois to, to west of Lincoln, Nebraska. And, uh, Grizz, Jan's dad told me the story. He said he was up having coffee like six o'clock in the morning in the summer of 71. And he said, Jan came roaring in the driveway and jumped out of the car and come running up in the house and says, dad, dad, there's this crazy long-haired kid in Illinois that's just as good as I am. We couldn't get the race started. We were banging wheels. He goes, that guy's pretty good. <laughs> and that was that was his op, uh, introduction to Bubby Jones and Jan Opperman happened at Granite City. Yeah, and they really were the two free-spirited, long-haired kids, you know, that kind of epitomized that whole period. They weren't kids, yeah. but, I mean, they had that, that look about them. They sure did. Yeah. Yeah. About after the California years – 
Bubby ends up back in the Midwest, kind of in a in a third role almost as a driver coach, a mentor, a, a guy who worked for different race teams. Uh, you got to see him a lot more in that period. Uh, did he did he enjoy that role? I think he did, but he he was also quite frustrated, and he got really he had some health issues, serious health. He had a he had a stroke before he left California, and then he had a he had to have surgery because to avoid an aneurysm, and that really took the wind out of him. I mean, they cut him two hundred and seventy degrees all the way around his his chest to his back, and uh, he was. I don't know whether they cut nerves or what happened, but he was in a lot, a lot of pain for the for the rest of his life. And but he was frustrated also because Jones never ever lost his love of automobile racing. He loved to compete. He didn't care. He wasn't driving anymore, and he was helping and coaching young kids. But he he loved going to the racetrack and and trying different things on cars. And and uh, he he was if you were his coach, I told more than one kid that was driving, driving for Bub. I said, if you pay attention to what that guy tells you, you're going to be 10 miles down the road in six months. I mean, he is, he is that smart. And it was his whole life and his passion. He loved racing till the last, his last breath. He never gave up on, I mean, he, he was frustrated because here's a story. One of the last conversations I ever had with him before he passed away. He looked at me one day, sitting in his garage, and he said, "He said, Timmy, he says, what do they call car owners these days? And I said, tell me, bub. And he said, dad, either dad owns the car or dad's got the sponsor. He says, back when I drove race cars, there was rides to be had, but you had to win races or your ass would get fired. Yeah. And that's that was his, you know, that was bub. I, I think he was a gift to a lot of, to the kids who did pay attention and to the to the few of us or to the bunch of us that would go have lunch with him. I mean, he, he had a nice time as sort of a uh, country racing philosopher almost, you know, he, he was great to sit and listen to. Uh, he was a great storyteller. And like you said, you could learn a lot from him Whether I think whether you raced or just followed racing. I mean, and uh, you look at the guys he influenced, like you and I've discussed this before, like when the world of outlaws started in 1978, um, and it, it became whatever you want to call it, you know, Kinzer and Wolfgang and Swindell, all three of those guys. Well, in my experience with those three guys, I could tell you stories on each one of them about the influence that Bubby Jones had on their lives and their driving. Um, Steve Kinzer told me and Danny Smith one night, we were drinking beer at Dallas at the Devil's Bowl, sitting in Gary Stanton's motorhome. And Steve said that his daddy used to take him racing with him on Bobby Kinzer was a great sprint car racer that raced against Bubby. And Bobby Kinzer would take his son Steve racing on weekends with him. And Steve said, my daddy pulled in from the heat race or hot laps, I'd clean the mud off his goggles and I'd run down and clean the mud off Bubby Jones's goggles. I mean, and <laughs> Doug Wolfgang called me the day after Bub passed away yeah. and said when he was in, he hadn't moved to Sioux Falls yet. He was in school in Beloit, Wisconsin, and his dad said when he got out of school, we're going to go down in Illinois and watch some races in central Illinois, and, and Doug said they went to uh, Granite City, and his dad says, you watch that guy in that B4 car, that Bubby Jones, that guy does it right, and Sammy Swindell, uh, wow, 
I mean, Bub raced against him at West Memphis and talked him into following him up to Little Springfield, Illinois. He says, you know, on a Saturday night, they're racing West Memphis, and here's a 16-year-old kid, and Jones liked young, hard chargers. And he says, come on, follow me up there. And he coached, and he says, I'll help you, you know, whatever. And I think I think Jones got into him and turned him over at, at Springfield. But and Ronnie Schumann, I remember when Schumann won the Nationals in 79 uh, at Knoxville. Uh, that afternoon, Bub was telling him the race is going to be won on the bottom in three and four tonight. Well, Jones broke the crankshaft lining up in McQueen's car for the A main and was out of the race. And he said, come on, Timmy, we're going to go down and watch this race in turns three and four. We went down there and Schumann was running the third or fourth. And I think Tim Green was leading and dropped out. So now he's up to like second or third. And Jones walked out on the track during the yellow flag and pointed at the bottom to Schumann. Get down here. And Schumann did. Yeah. And guess who won the race? Yeah. Amazing the influence he had on, on on people of that caliber. You know, how many how many guys could take some take could offer to take a kid like Sammy Swindell under their wing and have the kid come along and actually advance him? I mean, Sammy was a pretty by his own admission, a pretty hard headed kid, but he was happier than hell just to kind of be at, at, at Bub's elbow learning things. Well, you know this one. You've heard it before. Guy Forbrook is a magnificent sprint car mechanic, one of the best in the country. And he called me one time, and I was working at CNR Racing at the time, and he called me, and he was talking about chassis setups and other stuff and asking me what I thought about this and that. And I said, well, why don't you call Bub and ask him uh, ask him what he thinks? And he goes, do you think he'd want to talk about that? And I said, he'd love it. Here's his number. Call him. And Guy put it all in perspective for me. He goes, Sammy Swindell knows as much about race cars as anybody I know, and he thinks Bubby Jones walks on water. And I said, well, <laughs> that pretty well sums it up. <laughs> I don't think they're ever going to stop talking about that guy and, and, and telling stories and smiling and remembering those days. Well, you know what? The thing about Bub, I don't know. You know, I think one of the coolest things he ever did, and I don't want to forget to say this, is the last thing, the last race he ever drove, he won at Manzanita. This is the last, he hadn't raced in a year, and he shows up at Manzanita. And quickly tell this one, I was working at Newman Haas, and Mike, we were racing at Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and Michael Andretti had the team over to eat at his house. And Mario came in. And it was a Thursday night. What was the Thursday night show back then? Uh, and then 91, 1991 on the SPN. Thursday Night Thunder? Thir- okay. Major. Well, they had Thursday Night Thunder on, and they were giving their race report. And they say, oh, the Pacific Coast Nationals last weekend at Manzanita Speedway, Bubby Jones won the race. And here's a – they uh, show an interview with Bub, and there's big screen TV in Michael's living room. There's 30 people watching it. And the, and the interviewer goes to Bub. He says – Boy, Jones come out of retirement, you know, over a year. Why'd you come out of retirement? And Jones looks at this guy and he goes, because I needed the money. And Mario Andretti said, no, nah, that's a racer. <laughs> <laughs> Takes one to no one, right? Takes one to no one. Yep. But, I mean, when you talk about Bub, I mean, he loved racing. He loved his family even more. I mean, going to California like he did. Uh, the racing was good, but he met Patty, and that changed his whole life. Like I said, California is his happy place. He's so proud of his family. 
Uh, his son Davey's one of the best sprint car mechanics in the country. Tony was a great race car driver, and he's a promoter in California now. His son-in-law, Justin Grant, uh, speaks for itself what he's done. Um, you know, Jones, is, his influence is still with us. Um, I don't know. I you know, I was just – I can't tell you how fortunate I and, – and I'll tell you one thing before we go. Um, when I was driving sprint cars, I turned my car over at Paragon one night and destroyed it, tore the cage off of it, and – the next day, my phone rings, and it's Bubby. And I was going to buy a car from uh, Atkins and McQueen. And Bub says, don't buy a car, Timmy. He goes, I'm going to build you one. I'm going to give it to you. And Jones built me a sprint car and gave it to me. That's what kind of friend he was. He gifted it to you. He, gi- he gifted it to me. I remember we were driving down the freeway in L.A., and he and I was talking about I'm going to pay you for it. And he pulled over, and he looked at me, and he goes, Timmy. He says, you ain't going to pay me for that car. You earned it a long time ago. And I went, <laughs> wow. I mean, that's the kind of guy Bubby Jones was. Yeah. Yeah. Neat guy. So, well, uh, this has been rambling, and I just wanted to talk about Bub and uh, Bonesy. I just – thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, nobody ever gets tired of talking about Bubby and uh, to talk about him with a guy that, that went racing with him so often uh, – it's my pleasure. Well, once again, I thank you. And uh, like I said, I Bub was huge in my life, and uh, I miss him every day. And, uh, and the beauty of these podcasts I'm starting to figure out is you can talk about who you want to talk about, and uh, Bubby Jones deserves to be remembered. So we just talked about him. Good deal. Thanks, Bones. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.